I would like to see every person, man, woman, child, every businessman, every coach, every political figure, every rich guy and every poor person in Logan County to turn to Jesus and follow him. That's what Jesus would like to see as well. What if every one of us in this county were convicted by their need for Jesus? And what if we all decided, and everybody decided, we're going to live the Jesus life? Do you think our county would be different? No one would be perfect, of course, but it would be the kind of place, it would be different. How about our nation or even our world? If everyone experienced the loving grace of Jesus and came back to God and were striving to follow Christ with all their hearts, following His teachings, you know, the Ten Commandments, living grace-filled lives and teaching their children, what would it be like? I'm going to read a quote to you. It said, There are no Christians, as far as I know, blowing up buildings. I'm not aware of any Christian suicide bombers. I'm not aware of any major Christian denomination that believes the penalty for apostasy is death. I have mixed feelings about the decline of Christianity insofar as Christianity might be a bulwark against something worse. Now, what's interesting is who said it? It's an atheist, Richard Dawkins, a very famous atheist. And even he realizes if people follow Jesus, it's good for the world. I'm not so sure he's right about the decline of Christianity because Christianity is actually expanding worldwide. It is in decline in Europe and starting to in the United States, but in China and Africa, South America, a lot of nations like that, it's it's exploding. But even an atheist recognizes Jesus is a life-changing agent, and where Jesus is followed, the world is a better place. People have an eternal hope, and they have something greater to live for, and that is why he came. So if you want to improve Logan County, and I know... Most of you love Logan County or you love Mount Pulaski. If you want to improve it, if you want to improve the United States, and I know you love the United States, if you want to improve this world, if you want to improve your home, get more people to follow Jesus. Today, we're going to look at three parables of Jesus in Luke 15. I call this Lostology 101, looking at people who are lost and are not following Christ. And I just want to get Jesus' perspective on this. Luke 15, 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now, let's stop there. Tax collectors and sinners are the bad people. And for some reason, bad people were attracted to Jesus. It's amazing how Jesus was drawn and they were drawn to him, people that no one else liked. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He actually likes them and he eats with these people. It's disgusting. Jesus, don't you know that these are the people who are causing all the problems in the world? And if Jesus were here today, I do wonder if he would welcome people that I might not be comfortable around. He associates with everyone. So Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home, and he calls his friends and neighbors together, or he posts it on Facebook, or tweets it, and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let's stop there. Now, the point is obvious here that shepherd, who is Jesus, or God, goes after the lost. That's very clear, even if it's only one. But there's also a counterpoint here, the 99. 99 righteous ones who don't need to repent. Really, Jesus? Is he, is he saying that the majority don't need to repent? I don't think so. I think he's playing with us. I think there's a little sarcasm in here. Who's really lost? Yeah, the tax collectors and sinners, they're lost. You know, that's that one sheep. But so are these Pharisees and teachers and preachers, the so-called righteous. 
And they're really the tragic ones because very often they don't see the need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Well, silver's pretty valuable, so what do you do? Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, no one wants to be lost, but some are. And the best thing, I'm going to contend for every individual, and the best thing for Logan County, and the best thing for the United States and for the world is for everyone to be found and to bow down to the rightful king of the universe. The best thing I can do myself for this world is to repent and know Jesus and do, do what he wants me to do. The best thing I can do for my neighbors is encourage them to repent and know Jesus. And the heavens rejoice. Jesus came to seek the lost. He continued, There's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, a Jewish boy. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now it sounds like he's repenting. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now the father's God here, represents God running to this repentance. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. That's true. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat and calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, uh-oh, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, the younger son, your younger brother, has taken his part of the inheritance and blown it. You have been faithful for all these years, and now they're having a party for this derelict son. Do you rejoice that he's back? The older son became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Notice his relationship to his dad. Slavery, orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Dad, I was the good kid. He spit on you and you treat him like a king. Do you know any parents like that? I know a lot of parents that favor the derelict kid. They do. I think it's just natural. So what's dad say? My son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus is making two points in these three stories. Number one, there are lost people and God is searching for them. And this is what makes heaven rejoice when they come home. The second main point, we are all lost people. Even the good guys. 
And we need to repent, all of us. So I'm going to suggest the best thing we can do for this community and for our nation and for our world, if we really love our community and we really love this world, number one, we're going to admit we're not righteous and admit we need to repent and fall at the feet of Jesus. That's the first thing. But also, we're going to be like this shepherd and go after the lost. They're two of the be- these are two of the best things I can do for this world. And I dare you tell me anything you can do that's better for this world or for people, better than these two. I dare you to tell me, what's better than to follow Jesus? He came to seek and save the lost. Like a shepherd who loses a sheep or a woman who loses her money or a father who loses his son, that shepherd and that woman and that father is God or Jesus coming to look for the lost. So today we're going to do Lostology 101. We are to have the heart of this shepherd and the heart of this woman and the father, and we have to ask, how can we reach people who are lost? Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. He ate with lost people. He seemed to be very comfortable around them. He understood them. He knew what was going on with them. He wasn't offensive when he talked to them. He was very effective. And our challenge is how can we reach out? How can we be good lostologists? How many of you grew up in the church? Raise your hand. I think the majority. Let me ask you, how many of you have been part of a church for more than five years? Okay, vast majority. You are, by definition, a spiritual insider. And statistics say that after about five years in the church, or maybe even less, most of your deepest relationships are with other believers. And that's good, because it means you become a part of the body of Christ. That's what Jesus wants. But the downside of that is we no longer have meaningful contacts with people who are not spiritual insiders. And the problem, we've been insiders for so long, we struggle to relate to anyone else. And what's amazing about Jesus, he was the ultimate spiritual insider. I mean, after all, he was God. I mean, you can't get more spiritual than that. He was totally pure, totally holy, totally righteous. And yet he was also able to mingle with and relate well to lost people. He became a lostologist. He was a lostologist. And we need to become lostologists. So I'm going to give you nine laws of lostology. Ten minutes each, 90 minutes and we'll be out of here, all right? Lostology number one, we are all lost. The lost sheep and lost coin and the prodigal son were obviously lost, but so were the 99 sheep that remained behind, and so was the elder son that stayed behind. They were the good people, the righteous, Jesus calls them, but they're lost too and they need to repent. Isaiah 53, 6, we read this last week, says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray, all We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of sin falls short of the glory of God, and this is very important in lostology because it puts us on the same level with everyone else. I'm going to tell you a story that I didn't have in my notes because I was just reading it uh, the last couple weeks. There's a preacher. He grew up with his both parents were homosexual, and they divorced, and his mother had a lesbian partner, and he grew up in that home, and his father eventually came out as a gay man. He's today a preacher, and he's written an amazing book that I recommend for, in fact, the elders and staff are reading it right now. I think we should all read it. And he talks about the first time he went to a church and preached. He was just a student in college at the time. Remember, he has a real heart for his parents, obviously. And he brought his mom to church, and he preached that morning. And he was so excited to have her there. And then the next week, he came back to preach. And a couple elders met him on the front door. 
said, don't you ever bring people like that to our church again. Pharisees. The righteous. They needed to repent. I wondered what the preacher did, and he told us in the book, he said, I resign now. I'll preach yet this morning since I'm here, but I'm done. And he said when the service was over, they were singing the invitation, he walked out to the car, got in the car, left, never came back. If we become that church, I hope you do the same thing. Walk out. We are all on the same level. We're not better than anyone else. Both the younger son and older son were lost. Both needed to repent. Law number two. Being lost can be fun. This son that went off, the younger son, it sounds like he had a good time partying and money to spend and women and you know, selfish living really can be fun. And to hear some Christians talk, and some of us preachers too, well, non-Christians are miserable, at least they should be, and they don't have good relationships, and they lack purpose and fulfillment, and their lives are empty, and sin is destroying them. Well, if that were all true, then people would jump at the thought of knowing Jesus. But they don't jump at the thought of knowing Jesus. Why? Because they're having too much fun. And you'll run into non-believers who have purposeful lives, strong families, a network of close friends, numerous activities they enjoy, and life is good, and they're not too worried about eternity because they have created nice theologies and philosophies that to ensure them they're going to be okay in the afterlife. God never said that people cannot live enjoyable lives without Him. Scripture never attempts to discount the pleasures of this world or, or sin. That's why most people prefer lostness. It's fun. However, number three, lostness is always short-sighted. Hebrews 11.25 talks about the pleasures of sin for a short time. Sin offers fun on credit. You can keep charging things and enjoying what that credit brings for a while, but sooner or later you have to pay the bills. And this son that went off, he had fun, but long term he ends up with the pigs. The drug addict started out with drugs as fun. The alcoholic started drinking as fun. The man who's consumed with money and greed uh, had fun making lots of money. The sex addict started as fun. And people can have fun being lost, but it won't last forever. Now, Emily LaVault is our youth minister's wife, and she blogs, and she's really a good writer. And I'm going to read you part of this. I got her permission to do this because she opens a window to her soul, and I believe it speaks to every soul. Uh, I would like to begin this blog by telling you I'm tired, she says. I'm so stinking tired. I'm tired of checking Facebook. I'm tired of trying to stay trendy. I'm tired of how much good food I let go to waste and how many pairs of shoes I own and how many paper towels I use on the daily. I'm tired of having the impulse to get the biggest, sweetest, most caffeinated thing in the coffee shop. I'm tired of patting myself on the back for reading my Jesus Calling devotional every morning. I'm tired of this ridiculous belief that I need more stuff. It's exhausting, seriously, and it's weighing on me. Now, I just love her honesty. And then Emily introduces a book entitled Seven by Jen... Hatmaker, I think is her name, which I just ordered for my wife because of this blog. And essentially, the book is a crusade against excess covering seven different areas, food, clothes, possessions, media, waste, spending, and stress. And Emily writes, there's something in my soul that wants more. I'm so tired of the excess, of the other glut utter gluttony I see in my life, and I want something more. Now, food and clothes and possessions and media, spending, is any of that bad? No, that, that's all good stuff. Some of that is actually fun. But if that is all there is, 
food, clothes, money, media, and spending. It just doesn't fill. It doesn't last. And those things will be fun, and they may be fun, but the fun is not enough. And Emily is stating what all of us need to recognize, that all the fun stuff we chase is short-sighted. There's something more. And if you encounter someone who's at the credit stage of lostness, where lostness is still fun, the receptivity level will often not be very high. They're just having fun. And more and more, I believe that the opportunities to reach out into people's lives is when the brokenness comes and the exhaustion and the dead-end stuff. And I think evangelism today is going to be more and more picking up the broken pieces of people's lives when people realize that lostness ends up with the pigs. Number four, most people don't get lost on purpose. A child get lost, gets lost in a department store, wanders off. Uh, when his mom finds him, she scolds him, and he says, Mom, I didn't try to get lost. The word lost is in the Gospels, and the word means not only lost, but it carries the idea of, the idea of unintentionality. I mean, who wants to be lost? This lost sheep did not get lost on purpose. He probably got lost because of preoccupation. He found green grass that was nice over here and gradually just led him away from the flock. Some people get lost because of preoccupation. Job, family, you know, relationships, just living life, busyness, things like that. The lost coin got lost because of the carelessness of somebody else. The coin didn't wander off. Someone dropped it or misplaced it. The coin is actually a victim. And sometimes people are lost because they had no opportunity to hear, no church reached out to them, no, no Christian spoke to them. And so when we meet people who are, are, are not with Jesus, we should not assume they intended that. Jesus approached them almost as if it was not their fault. And consistently throughout the Gospels, lostness is non-purposeful, non-intentional word. No one intentionally wants to be lost. Number five. You can be lost and not know it. I remember coming home from Wisconsin several years ago, got to the toll roads right outside of Rockford. And at that time, I was not familiar with those roads and not really watching the signs. And I ended up on an interstate headed toward Chicago instead of going south on 39. And I didn't realize it for for several miles because most of Illinois, as you know, looks the same. And I made a wrong turn, got on the wrong road, but I did not know it. I didn't feel lost. I was convinced I was on the right path. And a whole bunch of people can be lost, but don't really know it, and will deny it, especially guys. Uh, Daniel Boone was asked if he ever got lost. He said, no, but I was bewildered once for four days. And when I was on that interstate, driving along, I started realizing uh, things are not quite, quite right. I saw a sign to Chicago. What? what? I don't want to go to Chicago. And, and then I realized I was going the wrong way. And we cannot force anyone to admit lostness, but we can try to put up some signs and just raise questions about, you know, the condition before God, you know, did you see that sign? You know, one of the best evangelistic tools is to ask questions. Jesus did it all the time. You just got people talking. When people verbalize what they're thinking, sometimes they see more clearly. We we all see more clearly. So it's more effective if you just listen, ask questions. And let people talk. Law number six, when you realize you're lost, it is unsettling. I remember once getting lost in downtown Oklahoma City. Now, you're going to hear in this sermon that I get lost quite a bit. I don't have a good sense of direction. But it was about 2 a.m. this time in an unsavory part of town. And we were in this little Honda Civic hatchback, packed as tight as a drum. Tabitha and Josh were preschool age, so this is a long time ago. 
And being aware of my lostness was not an issue. I was lost, and I knew it, and I was scared. I put my family in danger. And I ended up stopping in a 24-hour convenience store. I didn't want to stop there, but I had no choice. And there were three or four big guys in there, and they could tell that I was lost. I was not in my element. And one flinch from them, and I would have wet my pants. Pretty sure of that. And I was so grateful, so grateful when the direction giver was gracious and understanding. And, and I think of Jesus. When he went to lost people, he never made them feel inadequate. He never embarrassed them. He, he welcomed them. You know, Zacchaeus was this little conniving, sniveling tax collector that everyone hated. And Jesus never belittles him. In fact, in front of a whole crowd, he says, I want to go and eat with you, Zach, and gave him dignity. And, and they were lost, but Jesus refused to look down on them. And he was their friend. Which leads to number seven, it is risky to trust a stranger. When your kids get old enough to understand, you give them what? Stranger danger training. Beware of strangers. Now, what's complicated about that, there's good strangers and bad strangers, and it's hard to tell which is which. Who can you trust? If you're lost and need directions, what type of stranger are you going to talk to? I remember coming out of a Chicago Cubs ball game. Yes, I have been to a Cubs game. And I wasn't sure where to go. I'd never been there before. And at a stoplight, I rolled down my window and asked the guy in the car next to me, hey, do you know how to get to wherever it was I was supposed to go? He said, sure do. I'm going that way. Just follow me. And I trusted him. Why? Mostly because I didn't have a choice. But also, I sized him up right then and there. His car looked okay. He was dressed pretty well. He was friendly. looked fairly intelligent. He looked like a good stranger. Now, I wonder if I would have asked the guy if he looked different than that. When we're lost, we all go through a direction-giver selection process. Who am I going to trust to give me direction? And my first choice is someone I know and a friend. And if there's a friend around, I'll seek him out. And only when we're out of friends do we turn to strangers, and even then, we don't like to do it. That's why most people have a hard time walking into church off the street, because we're strangers. Huge implication here. We need to be friends with people. We need to uh, earn trust with people. Jesus went to parties, went to weddings. He talked to people. He ate with them. He helped them develop relationships with them. 80% of people who come to Christ do it through someone they trust. So how many non-Christian friends do you have? And I mean real friends, not acquaintances that you see at a ball game or something like that. Do you have real friends that don't know Jesus? Don't be a stranger. Law number eight, reaching out to the lost is unorthodox. In fact, in our culture, it's just downright almost a sin. In this parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, we miss a lot because of our lack of understanding of first century protocol. There's a lot of unorthodox behavior in this story. When the younger son returns to the father, the father does what? He runs out to the younger son, which no self-respecting grown man would do in that culture. Running in public of a grown man was an embarrassment. And then the father interrupts the son's confession, and any self-respecting father would allow the son to confess his sin after all he had wronged him and let the son eat some crow. Didn't let him do that. Instantly, the father commands a luxurious outpouring of affection for him, a big party. All of it is just inappropriate behavior. It's just not normal because the son needs to pay the price. And of course, the father is God, and God is an embarrassment because he's so excited to have the son return. And Jesus makes God look like this unconventional, unorthodox, giddy father who is so happy that the son returns. And he acts unorthodox. 
because of his son returning. Chuck Carhart was an elder in the first church I served. That was a long time ago. But he didn't become a Christian until he was in his 40s, middle age somewhere. And he was telling me that he lived in a small town for 40 years. And during those 40 years, not one Christian witnessed to him. And in this small town, there were several churches just like here. He was a businessman. He, he ran a lumber company. He was very visible. Everybody in town knew who Chuck Carhart was. And he ran across dozens of people, maybe even hundreds every day. And he said not one Christian said anything about his relationship to God, which was zilch. Well, Chuck moved to another small town, and a guy started coming in. And this guy was unorthodox, very bold. And he said, Chuck, are you saved? Do you know Jesus? Now, not many people do that. I mean, he was geeky. He was weird. Normal people don't do this. It's kind of like this father with a prodigal son here. But Chuck Carhart credits that man for getting him started on the road to faith. And Chuck Carhart became one of the best men of faith I've ever known. See, to some extent, all reaching out is risky and a little unconventional. So why should I do it? Why should I try to witness? Why should I pray for my neighbor? If it's uncomfortable, if it's unorthodox, if it's unconventional, why do it? And I'd say the only answer is because we know this is life. And we know that lostness is awful. And we have been filled with the love of God. We've experienced it and tasted it. We've shared in His salvation. And we just want to share it with others. Our mission at this church is love God, love people, and reach the world. Why? Because lostology, number nine, lost people matter. They matter to God and they matter to us. A few years ago, a couple in Los Angeles were engaged to get married, and about the time of their wedding, the girl discovered that she had a kidney disease and needed a kidney transplant. And coincidentally, the one who had a matching kidney was her fiancé. So he gave her one of his kidneys. And CNN interviewed them after the transplant, and they showed a picture of them, you know, in the same hospital room and separate beds, and they were holding hands uh, across, the, uh, across the way. And the woman said about this man who'd given this kidney for her, she said this, from this point on, when I reach around him, I'll feel a scar, and I'll know how much I matter to him. And when we get to heaven, there's going to be a person there with a scar, and we'll see how much lost people matter to him. And so we tell others because we know this is the way. Now, I want to challenge you to at least pray. Every day from here until least, I'll give you a, a deadline. Here to least, pray for two people or two families. Now, you can do more if you want to, of course. Pray for open doors. Pray for God to work in their life. Pray maybe you can invite them. Maybe there's someone who's slidden back and used to come. You know, and with Facebook and texting today, it is easier to invite. And if they say, well, I'm going to be out of town for Easter, ask what Sunday they'll be in town. Say, well, you can come that Sunday, okay? And just invite them maybe to Sunday school class. There's people who come on Sunday mornings that just aren't, you know, maybe real comfortable. Invite them, make them feel comfortable and part of the group. Uh, be like this dad, excited to see them come to Jesus. If you want to make Mount Pulaski a better place, if you want to make your town or make this county, this country a better place, win people to Jesus. He came to seek the lost, and we are to do the same. Father, I'd like to ask you to open our hearts and open our eyes to the needs of this world, and I pray that 
You'll fill us with an understanding of the depth of your love for us and how much we matter. I pray for your Holy Spirit to indwell us and give us a heart for those who are wandering and those who have strayed. And that you'll give us opportunities to speak and that we'll have the courage and boldness to be geeks for Jesus. I pray that Easter Sunday will be a beginning point for some people. I pray it might be a returning point for some. We pray for this church. I pray for me. That we focus on the right things and the important eternal things and not get trapped in all the machinery of doing church and help us not do church, but be the church. And be your body and your hands and your feet and your voice. Amen. You all stand. We are the change. The world is waiting for we've got the world is desperate for we will be and take to your streets and now's the time for us to rise and carry hope and let love shine and show this world that mercy is alive and now's the time for us to rise, carry hope to hopeless eyes, show this world that mercy is alive. We're not afraid. We're not afraid. We will abandon on to hear your name. On lips across the of your love Cause now's the time for us to rise Carry hope and let love shine and show this world that mercy is alive And now's the time for us to rise Carry hope to hopeless eyes and show this world Mercy is alive and fill our hearts with your compassion. Let our love be active here. Fill our hearts with your compassion. Let our
something really amazing happened when when Jesus left when he left his disciples the last things that he said to them were go out and make disciples of all nations of all kinds of people go out and make disciples go seek lost people let them know what I've said teach them to obey everything that I've commanded he commissioned his followers to go do that. That's the last thing he says. He says, now you need to go tell other people. He said, don't worry. Because I will be with you to the very end of the age. I'm going to go with you. But as my followers, it's your job to go make more followers. See, these are the same 12 guys that, that Jesus shared a meal with. We call it the Last Supper. We call it communion. We do it every week. It's this symbol of family and unity and that we have accepted the, the gift of Jesus. And so one of the things that comes along with that is going out and making disciples, going out and seeking lost people, coming alongside someone and ministering to them, telling them that they're loved, caring for them, asking them questions that matter. And so today as we take communion as you quietly pray, ask God to open your eyes 